Philippians chapter 3. We've been going through the book of Philippians verse by verse, and we find ourselves doing so again this morning. And in meditating upon the Apostle Paul's words of Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, I see three phrases about Christ that keep jumping out at me as I read them on the printed page and which could easily make up the outline for our message this morning. If you notice latter part of verse 7, the sake of Christ, sake of Christ. And then in the first part of verse 8, we find that phrase, knowing Christ, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then at the end of verse 8, Paul talks about gaining Christ, that I may gain Christ. And that's a wonderful ready-made outline, isn't it? Any preacher who misses this ought to get out of the ministry. Because there's our three-point meditation. Sake of Christ, knowing Christ, to gain Christ. What Paul is doing in this passage... Of course, as we have studied it before and as we continue to study it, he's warning the Philippians about beware of false teachers, those who would say that salvation is Christ plus something. And Paul wants to make the very clear stance that it is Christ and Christ alone plus or minus nothing. That's what salvation is. It is Christ and Christ only. And as he warns about false teachers, Paul gives a a testimony, gives an example of what he's doing to make the point that it's not what the false teachers are saying, But it it, it is what Paul and others who are teaching the true gospel and what they are saying that is the truth. And here it is. He says that I want you to know that if there was someone in the world who could proclaim a Christ plus something gospel, it would be me, Paul. I'm like the arch example of someone, especially as someone who is Jewish, who would say about myself, well, if the Christian church is telling us that you got to have Christ, then I would say, this is Paul sort of using himself as an example, if the Christian church is saying you got to have Christ plus something else like circumcision. And this is what some of these professing Christians known as the Judaizers, both in Galatia, in the book of Galatians, and here, that region of those Galatian churches in which Paul severely warned them not to depart to a Christ plus circumcision gospel or a Christ plus circumcision plus Sabbath keeping plus law keeping. And he's saying to the Philippians right here essentially the same thing. He talks about 
circumcision. And he says, watch out, verse 2, for those who mutilate the flesh. Because Paul is so intent on preaching this gospel of Christ only, he says that those who are advocating a Christ plus circumcision gospel are only mutilating themselves because the gospel is not Christ plus circumcision. He says very starkly, very clearly, that if you want to ask somebody from the Jewish religion, from Judaism itself, whether or not we ought to be circumcised as Christians, whether or not we ought to keep a Sabbath like the Jews kept Saturday Sabbath, or whether or not we ought to be full responders in obedience to the law of God, I tell you this, if that was the exact and true gospel of Jesus Christ, if that's what Christianity really teaches, then I want you to know that I would be the arch example of someone who could add Christ to my Judaism. That's what it is. I could add my Judaism, my law-keeping, my circumcision, my, my Saturday Sabbath observance. I could, I could do all of that, and I could add Christ to it, and that would make up Christianity. And if Paul were to teach such a thing, it would be a false gospel, because it's Christ alone. He says, verse 4 of Philippians 3, I myself, though, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, doing all these things, all my good works, I have more, I have far more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. If anybody could ever sort of uh, etch a pedigree on a piece of paper about how much I'm in the kingdom, how much God accepts me, how hard I'm working for the sake of God believing that I'm sincere enough to be allowed into His heaven, I'm the guy. He gives seven attributes. The first four are attributes about how He was raised and about where He came from and about His lineage And then the latter three are about himself personally, uh, a Pharisee. I was a zealous persecutor of the church. And as to law-keeping, I was blameless. There's nobody who's more in than I'm in if that's the way you got to be to get in. I'm the guy. And you remember last week I said that there were scads of people who would use maybe not these attributes, maybe not, maybe not this list, but they could say, I attend church. I attend church regularly. I attend church not only regularly and faithfully, but I'm involved in church. I pray prayers. I give of my resources for the work of the church. I'm very very philanthropic, and I I want to give out of the abundance of that which I've been given, and I read my Bible. In fact, I read my Bible a lot. 
And in my prayers and in my Bible reading, I even try at times to figure out what it means by what it says. (laughs) And I not only do that, but I once walked an aisle. And when the preacher said, come forward, or go to a prayer room, or sign a card, or be baptized, or to do any number of things that we are told to do, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things per se, but if someone is counting on those things to get them into heaven, if someone is believing that they have to have Jesus Christ plus their church attendance, plus their Bible reading, plus their many prayers, plus their giving, plus their baptism, and those things added to Christ's work on the cross is going to allow the whole bundle to be what God sees and says, you're very religious. You're committed. You're zealous. And if you want to add all of those things to my son Jesus Christ, if you think that the doing of those things are going to add anything to what he did in living a sinless life and dying a violent sacrificial death, then none of those things matter at all except Christ. It's only Christ. It's all of Christ. It's everything about Christ. And all of those things that you and I do, we come to church and we are endeavoring to be faithful in our church attendance. And if we did walk an aisle, if we did sign a card, if we were baptized, and if we do good works, and if we pray and read our Bibles, it's not for our salvation. It is something that we do because of our salvation. We don't do it to gain merit before God. We don't do it so as to make God think that by our zealousness, by our commitment, we are going to merit or even, pray tell, deserve His favor and grace. Now, the favor and grace that you and I receive from God is only on the basis of one thing, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. No wonder the Apostle Paul, when he's talking about his testimony and when he's giving those seven things, he says what he says in verse 7. But whatever gain I had implied, whatever gain I had from those seven things that he just articulated, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, it appears as though what Paul is doing is he's saying all of these things that I put in my credit column, and the reason why I'm using this accounting term, we could actually call this spiritual calculus. Spiritual calculus. I need to calculate where I am in my standing with God. And so, using Paul as that arch example, he says... Well, I had those seven things that I thought were in my credit column. And I thought those seven things were going to be enough. In fact, as a faithful Jew, far before Christ came onto the scene, far before Jesus was walking in Palestine, far before that, there were Jews like Paul who thought they didn't even need Christ. Those seven things were all that I needed. 
I'm a Jew. I was born a Jew. I was raised a Jew. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I know the culture. I know the language. I speak Hebrew. I speak Aramaic. Uh, I'm in this Hellenist area. That's a Greek-speaking area, but I know Hebrew, I know Aramaic, probably Aramaic was the speaking language of the day for those Hebrews, and I want you to know that even when there was this push against Judaism by the church, by Christians, by the way, as it's called in the book of Acts, I want to stamp that out. And so I became a zealous persecutor of the church. And all of those things I'm putting in my credit column, all seven of them, I don't, even, I don't even need Christ in a sense because all of these seven things were the things that I knew I was convinced of that would get me acceptance before God. And now the church comes along and the church is promoting Christ. The church is saying that it's Christ, that it's Christ's gospel, that it's Christ's cross And now this cross of Christ that you Christians keep proclaiming, this Christ and Christ alone, this gospel that you say is the only gospel, it's the only good news of how to get to heaven, how to be accepted by God, how to be declared righteous by God. If you're saying that it's Christ, it can't be Christ alone because all of those seven things like circumcision and Sabbath keeping and law abiding, all of those things are so important. And if you you do those things plus Christ, then you got to be in. you got to be accepted. And Paul says, I'm telling you those seven things. I looked at those and I thought they were in my credit column. And when I compared those to the cross of Jesus Christ and what Christians were saying, I had to persecute them. I was zealously. In fact, I was on the road to Damascus to get papers so that I could continue to incarcerate, if not also sentence Christians to death for this false good news. Because you've got to follow all of these things. You have to do what is right, and when you do what is right, then God has to accept you. Now, you and I would say, can anyone really do perfectly what is right? Can anyone really do all of these things and be so clearly in with God, declared right with God, to actually as a human being to to be declared righteous in God's sight, the holy God, the righteous God? Now, when you examine it a lot more, and Paul, of course, did about himself, he would later say about himself, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm chief. And can you imagine walking down that Damascus road, and there's a light that shines brighter than any light you've ever seen, and the light is so thunderous, and the voice is so thunderous that Paul finds himself smack down, prone position on the road saying, who is it, Lord, Master? He he knows that this is a supernatural act and he knows that he is undoubtedly speaking to deity. And who is this deity that is speaking to Paul as he lays prone on the Damascus road. The book of Acts says, Saul, Saul, that was his Hebrew name, 
his Greek name, Paul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Master, Lord? And the voice, the thunderous voice says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What a shock. What an incredible shock. Especially for a Jewish person who's got these seven things that he thinks are making him right with God. And Jesus goes on to tell him all of the things that Paul assumed was making him right with God were actually the things not in his credit column, but in his debit column. This is what we might call the ultimate profit and loss statement. Because all of these things that Paul and the Jews of his day were assuming would make them favorable to God, even if they thought they were already in the kingdom of God, and and they of course did, they were doing these things in order to continue to be in the kingdom of God. And God, the Lord Jesus Christ, slammed him down on that road and said, you've got it all wrong. All the things that you think you're doing to be accepted by me are actually ultimately because of the way you view them, they're going to condemn you. And when they condemn you, you cannot blame me because I've told you forever and always, all the way back in the Old Testament scriptures, that salvation, favor by God, is through grace. Through grace. That's always been the message. That's always been the good news. That's that's always been the plan. That's always been the story. And it came to such crystal clarity when Jesus Christ came onto the scene and when he did those miracles and those signs, you and I know in our hearts, because we've been shown the truth of the gospel, that that is no mere man who could do those things. And then he dies on the cross, something that they can't recognize, they can't fathom, they don't understand. How is it that a Messiah sent from Israel is coming not to overthrow the government right now, not to physically overthrow that government and make himself king of Israel for all of this Roman oppression that we're under? How come he's not doing that but dying? And Jesus said, Mark 8, Mark 9, three, four, five times to those very disciples, those Jewish men who were waiting for him to restore the kingdom. I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised again from the dead on the third day and the kingdom will ultimately be restored. But what we must do is we must worship a dead, resurrected, ascended Messiah And then God will bring the kingdom to bear on this world. And they were saying, I don't get that. I don't understand that. That, That's that's not how I read the Old Testament scriptures. And no wonder Jesus with those two disciples after his resurrection, 
He's walking on the road to Emmaus, according to Luke 24, and he's telling them, oh, what's going on? What's, what's all the turbulence in Jerusalem? And they say, don't you understand? Don't you get this? There was this man, Jesus, and we thought he was the Messiah of Israel, but he died. And Jesus responds and says, don't you guys understand? This is the way it's always supposed to be. This is, this is what God has planned. For the Messiah to come, to live a righteous life, to do mighty deeds for His heavenly Father, and then to die an ignominious death, and then to, to have a violent, sacrificial death that atones for the sins of His people, and His name shall be called Jesus, for He will deliver His people from their sins. Jesus means Yahweh saves And when he's resurrected from the dead, he will ascend to the Father. And one day in the future, he will come in his second coming glory to be the promised King of kings and Lord of lords who will rule the world forever and ever. And he says to these two disciples, one named Cleopas, the other unnamed, haven't you read in the Old Testament scriptures? Don't you see? Don't you understand? This one who stands before you shall open your eyes so that you understand the Old Testament scriptures as you otherwise should. And he miraculously opened their eyes to understand the scripture. And no wonder when he says, I'll be departing now, they say, no, no, no. Continue to teach us. Stay here. Have a meal with us. And did they not also say in Luke 24, when he was teaching us on the way, were not our hearts burning within us? Well, there was a guy named Saul who didn't understand it either. And when he was going to Damascus to grab the papers to incarcerate and even murder Christians who had it all wrong, Paul realized on that day and forever until he went himself to be with the Lord, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus did live a sinless life. He did die a sacrificial death. He was ascended to the Father. He is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And this Jesus is the one who slapped me down on the Damascus road and he told me that I was persecuting the truth instead of the error. Do you know why Paul always lived for the rest of his life on this earth? as one who was totally in debt to grace because he knew how much he himself had been forgiven. Can you imagine all your life long believing that what you're doing in your life, all your good works, all your serving, all your love, all your activity, all your giving, all your praying, all your reading were actually things that you were banking on in your credit column? 
and they turned out to be in your loss column? What a shock! And yet, are there not millions of people, multiplied millions, who are utterly deceived that what they're doing in their lives, like the Apostle Paul, Mark the seven, come up with the the serious seven that I do in my life for which God can do nothing but say, come into my kingdom. You're a really, really good person. You've done really, really good works. I find no fault with you. I find you utterly and completely and totally righteous. Now, how many of us would make it? We know ourselves too well. We know about us. And it isn't pretty. We know our motives. In fact, we know them about this much. And what we do is we cover over those motives with a whitewash so that even the stuff we really know that nobody else knows about us is that which we hope we don't even further investigate about ourselves. And what we do is we whitewash the thing and we do a kind of exchange. And an exchange says something like this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take all the things that I know are true about myself, myself that's not really that good and I'm going to whitewash it. I'm going to exchange it with all the things that I really do believe that I'm good at. And I hope that God will accept me on that day of judgment so that those things that I don't do that I know I should do and the things that I'm doing that I know I shouldn't do will sort of correct themselves in the end. And I'm hoping that at that point, perchance, God will say, come into my kingdom, you righteous person. You know what that is? Total folly. Total folly. It sends not such a person to an eternal heaven and bliss, but to an eternal hell. Paul knew it. Paul knew it. And when he finally came to that realization of an ever-growing understanding of who Jesus Christ truly is, he looked at all of those seven things in his pedigree and he said, those things aren't blessing me. Those things, aren't, those things aren't God saying, you're a righteous person, come and live with me forever. Those things are actually debit to me, loss to me. What's, what's in the prophet column? Christ. Christ alone. This is what he says. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for what? The sake of Christ, because of Christ. It's Christ alone. I count everything else as loss because of Christ. And he can't stop there. Verse 8, indeed, and he actually makes a stronger point in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Not just those seven things that I listed, but everything else. As loss. And what does he compare it to? This is a comparable statement. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, the superseding value of what? Knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. And if you don't really know who he's referring to there, he says, knowing Christ, and then he adds Jesus, and then he adds Lord. Knowing 
Christ Jesus the Lord. And then if you still don't see what Paul is clinging to for his eternal salvation, he personalizes it with the pronoun, my Lord, my Lord. There is no greater worth, there's no greater value, there's no greater salvation, there's no greater acceptance, there's no greater eternal meriting of life everlasting unless it's in Christ Jesus our Lord, my Lord, your Lord. I've heard people say, look, I don't want to talk about religion. It's a very personal thing. Well, guess what? It cost Jesus Christ his life publicly. And when he says, if you want to follow me as Lord, you must follow me as Lord in a public manner or else you'll be rejected by my heavenly Father. That's what he says. And Paul's summing up all of his life and he's looking at everything he did, everything he thought, every road he was traveling, everything he was counting on that would be gained to him. And he says, I count everything as loss for knowing Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, the one from Nazareth, who is also my Lord. He's my master. He's my king. Ask yourself today, is Christ Jesus my Lord? Is he my Lord? Because of Christ, I count everything else as loss. Because of Christ Jesus my Lord and the surpassing worth of my Lord. Do you, do you realize that even Jesus taught about himself this profit loss idea? I want you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And I want you to see what our Lord Jesus Christ says even about himself and about his person and about his gospel and about being with him and about seeing the surpassing value of knowing Christ. In Matthew chapter 16, this is, this is what the, the Bible lets us know with crystal clarity. And, and this goes far beyond somebody's uh, religious upbringing, where they were born, like Paul saying, you know, I was, I was born of Israel, uh, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, I said last time there could be someone who says, well, my family's always been in the church. Or if you say, look, even if I don't think I'm uh, born of a privileged family, I'm, I'm born in the world, and that means that God thought something of me for me to be born in the world, and as I've progressed in the world, I think a lot of people really like me. I get along with, with everybody, and so I think I'm a privileged person, and so because people like me, I can amass a fortune, uh, I can uh, get on some kind of a prominent uh, staff position, uh, I could uh, uh, be seen by others as someone who's good and not evil, uh, whatever it may be, uh, whether you think you've come from a privileged family or not, or whether you're looking for prestige or power, or whether you're looking for anything else that focuses on you. And if you're looking at anything else, especially like wealth, to be able to show you as a successful person in this world, this is what Jesus Christ says, Matthew 16, 26, 
For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits what? The soul. Doesn't matter how far you climb up the ladder. Doesn't, doesn't matter how much you're perceived in the world's eyes as bold, beautiful, successful, rich, stature. What if you get it all? What if you're the most astute intellectual of the age? Oh, what if you're the most wealthy, multiplied billionaire on the planet? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is, is going to come with His angels and the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He's done. I, I don't want to have a bunch of stuff in my credit column that upon examination by Jesus Christ and the glory of the Father and the angels who do God's bidding and who says, I looked at your profit and loss statement and everything you thought was profit was actually in your debit column. It's loss. I don't want to be that person. I don't want that. You say, well, if I, if I take everything and if I put it in the debit column, all my pedigree, all my aspirations, all my desires, all of my, my impressions of how people look at me and want to see me as successful and all of this stuff that I aspire to, if I put all of that on the junk heap, if I put all of that in the trash bin, then what do I have? What do I have? Turn over a couple of chapters to Matthew 13. Matthew chapter 13. You know what you have? Just two very quick parabolic statements of our Lord. Look at Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What's Jesus teaching? What's the point? Jesus is the treasure. Christ is the treasure. And when a man comes to the end of himself, when he realizes all this stuff that I thought was in my credit column, it's actually all the stuff that I'm, I'm counting on for God's favor, it's in my loss column. So I'm going to give up all of that, but what do I gain? Here's the answer. Christ. He's the eternal treasure that if you have Him, you have how much? Everything. He's the treasure hid in the field. And you notice that the man who covers it up so nobody else can get it, he then, for the joy, sells all that he has to possess the treasure. Paul says, I didn't give up anything. Truth be told, I didn't give up anything because I got the treasure. Look at the next verse, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of how much value? Great value. We could say Philippians 3, surpassing value. The greatest value of all values. And what does he do? He went and sold 
a few dollars to buy the pearl of great price. You can't get the pearl of great price for a few dollars. What do you have to sell? Everything. Everything at all. And from a negative vantage point, Luke 9 says, and you got to pick up your cross and you got to carry it daily in order to follow Jesus Christ. You say, but wait a minute, I mean, you know, picking up your cross and carrying it daily and, and somebody who gives up all that he has to buy this treasure hid in the field or he gives up all that he has to buy this pearl of great price, that kind of sounds like works. It kind of sounds like maybe I'm doing a lot in order to buy the treasure. No, here's, here's the truth. The truth is that because you see Christ for who he is, because you love Jesus Christ, because you've finally seen the veil taken away from your eyes and you see Jesus for who he truly is, the pearl of great price, the treasure hid in the field, you don't do a thing except this. Replace, exchange what you thought was going to get you in, what you thought you deserved, what you thought you'd earned, and you take all of that and you just throw it that direction And you then say, all I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. Luke 9 says, it is worth all the denial. It's worth all the denial. It's like what Jesus said in John 12. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You say... What in the world does that mean? Here's what it means. That like a wheat that goes into the ground and only does what wheat does. You go into the ground and you give up yourself as a kernel. And when you are in the ground and you give yourself up as a kernel and you die in such a ground, God does the rest and what sprouts is beautiful, luscious wheat. And it bears fruit upon fruit upon fruit. Here's what you and I do. We die. We die to self. We die to all of the stuff that we think is in our credit column. And when we die to those things, we are granted eternal life's fruit. And what is it? We put our faith, our trust, our reliance, our future everything we have, everything that we are, and we place them squarely into the hands, the loving hands of Jesus Christ and Him alone. And then He says, and if you die, you shall bear much fruit. This is, this is the gospel, my friends. This is the gospel. And this is what Paul is saying. Go back to Philippians 3. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then the third and final statement, for His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Rubbish. You know, all the stuff that I thought was in my credit column, all that stuff that I thought was going to get me there safely, Paul now says, I've suffered the loss of all that stuff plus more and yet when I look at that stuff that's really lost that I thought was profit, I now see that Christ is everything and all that stuff is rubbish. And do you know rubbish 
is, is a, a term that is not a term of endearment. Rubbish, the Greek word is, and, I, and, and, and it, it's almost like automonopoietic, scubalon, scubalon, refuse, dung, trash. And there are several other words that we could use. And Paul says, everything I thought was profit, gain, help, reward, acceptance is nothing but dung so that I may gain Christ. Dung! Oh, my dear friends. If there's anyone here who is relying on anything except Jesus Christ, the sake of Christ, knowing Christ, gaining Christ, do not be in for the great shock of your eternal soul. It's Christ and Christ alone. Fly to Him, flee to Him, run to Him, even now. Let's pray together. Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Master, our Redeemer. It is for Your sake, Christ, It is for knowing you, Christ. It is for gaining Christ. We ask that you would allow us to partake of Christ and Christ alone and put all of the other things that we thought were going to merit us eternal life and we put them in the trash heap of eternity and we ask for Christ and Christ alone through your death, through your burial, through your resurrection, and by your ascension to the Father, and through your second coming glory again to judge the living and the dead, we want to be found only in Christ. As Paul goes on to say in this chapter, I want to be found in Him, that I may know Him, that I may be becoming like Him. Oh, that is our, that is our plea. If there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus Christ, who doesn't have a relationship with Christ, who thinks that somehow something that they're doing is ever going to merit acceptance by Christ, may you disabuse them of any such notion. And may Christ, may you become glorious to them, sweet to them. And may you come into their lives through their faith so that they could say, with us and with the Apostle Paul, gain Christ, knowing Christ, for the sake of Christ. We pray in His name. Amen.